as we start today, there, I, I want to, I want to kind of further clarify some things we were talking about uh, last week. Uh, I think most of you were here. We, uh, we actually spent a, quite a while talking about uh, seer stones and, and kind of physical Mormonry, if you will. Uh, the physical objects and, and things, and how important seer stones were to the whole thing. So I want, I want to do uh, two things ahead of that. Uh, one, uh, uh, one of the discussions we had last week, there was some question about is Joseph's looking into seer stones, and this is much more for next week when we start talking about translation, but I wanted to finish it here. There was a question raised about was it Joseph or the seer stone? You know, how much or some of it together. Uh, and I ran across a wonderful little story that Martin Harris tells that when he and, and Joseph are translating, uh, that they get tired um, and so they take a break. And they do what boys do, and that is that they walk down to the, the river, the Susquehanna River, and they're throwing rocks in the water. They're just doing that, they're just taking a break and everything. Martin looks in the water and he sees a stone in the water that looks an awful lot like Joseph's brown seer stone that he's using. And when Joseph isn't looking, he reaches in and he grabs the stone. And then when they go back to the house, as Joseph is settling in, Martin quickly tra changes out the stones. He takes the one he just pulled from the river, puts it in the hat, takes the other one, puts it in his pocket. Uh, Joseph then proceeds to start translating. He puts his head in the hat and there's a long pause and then he goes, okay Martin, what did you do? <laughs> Could not translate off of a, that stone. It had to be a particular stone, that stone and Joseph fascinating little wrinkle that says it couldn't have been just any rock a particular stone that he was using which I thought was interesting okay alright this is this is point number two and I'm gonna show a little video here um, I'm gonna do it this way uh, this is a video from um, one of the books that has come out about uh, seer stones and about the translation of the Book of Mormon it's a book called From Darkness into Light. And the authors of this, of this book uh, did a uh, kind of a book signing at uh, Benchmark Books in Salt Lake. And they, they recorded it. And one of the, one of the uh, ones that spoke here was Anthony Sweat, who did the illustrations for the book. He's also a BYU professor. And he makes some comments that I was listening to this week that I thought were, that, that really bear heavily on, on our ability to, how we see history and how we see particularly our history. So let me see if I can, if I can uh, crank this up here. And I'm hoping that you can see this well and hear it. share a few thoughts on it. Uh, and I brought in, by the way, uh, the original painting. Uh, this is the painting I did. Can you hear this well? I can hear it well. And I see the chapter heading image as well. I know it's a little dark. But... Alright, here's why it's important. We're all familiar with this. Harry Anderson, the great seventh-day Adventist. Great artist. Wonderful artist. Uh, he did some images for the church. And I remember being a little boy and seeing 
looking at this image. Here's where the problem comes in. I saw this image, and take a look at it closely. What could one deduce about crucifixion from this image? Now I invite your feedback on this. That yeah, well, there's no blood. What else could you deduce? Yeah, this confused me as a kid. I remember seeing this as a kid. Did this ever confuse any of you? I remember seeing this and thinking, oh, they only, Romans only nailed Jesus to the cross. They did not nail other persons. They did it specifically only to him. Uh, I don't think that's important historically whatsoever, but I came to that conclusion as a kid based on seeing some artwork. Now I don't know why Harry Anderson chose to rope the two thieves and only nail the Savior. Well, I they did so. Okay. Here's another one. If I could grab a thousand Mormons right now, and if I said, picture King Noah in your mind, 999 of them are going to picture a large fat man. <laughs> Even though the book of Mormon text never once mentions King Noah's weight. Now they do call him a white But they don't mention his weight whatsoever. Now I can even, I've done this before. I even say to them, what pets does King Noah have? <laughs> Uh, 
classes at BYU. So I get to teach thousands of students, so my sample size is extremely large. Therefore, these outcomes are very valid. <laughs> so which one? Roughly, roughly, 30% um, will say this. Almost 50% of them will pick this one. Now, when I ask them what's wrong with this, the only thing that they say is wrong with this, what do you think? The little hands. No, that's literally from the 1870s. No. <laughs> the, the main concern there was, did all of our planes? Let's have a lot of that. Wasn't there a sheet? That's all they care about. Um, only about 70% of my students ever select the hat. Therefore, back to Mike's question, I think with some statistical validity, we can say, uh, take a common lottery saying, a BYU sample anyway, which the majority of them are return missionaries. How many of them know that Joseph translated a little more by placing cedar stones in a hat? I would say uh, less than 10%. Except for this class, because we know it's 100%, right? <laughs> yes. And students will say, when, I, when we talk about it, and we, and we show them the sources, and we look at some of the things that Mike and Gary have written on, and the others have written on, they'll say, but that's not how it's represented in the imagery. I just want to show you this in an actual email I got from a student after we talked about the translation. I just wanted to thank you for today's lesson about Joseph Smith and the translation process. A little over a year ago, I started spending a lot of time with my friend, and I admitted the name for confidentiality, but recently left the church was pretty much convinced of atheism. He had researched some things about Joseph Smith, which means he went on Wikipedia, and he tell me all about it. <laughs> when he would tell me about those things, my first instinct was to deny it, to say, no, and listen, this is the point. No, that can't be true. That's not what the illustrations of the translation look like. And I've never been taught that in church. But you're seeing how imagery actually affects people's views of history and their beliefs. And the problem lies in that artists don't intend to teach history when they create an image. Uh, for part of the essay, I, I interviewed a handful of artists, including Del Parson, uh, Walter Rain. You know who Walter Rain is? He's one of the great artists in the church. And Jake Richards, he's a great upcoming artist. And I asked them some questions about painting historically and painting realistically. And they just took, I mean, look at, look at what Walter Rain said right there. I don't think an artist has any responsibility to be historically accurate. If I am doing a painting, I can do whatever I want. I can look at a sunset and paint it blue. Instead of red, if I want to express something, I'm film as an artist, I have a responsibility to be historically accurate unless someone has commissioned me. Walt Rand is very, he's, he's been commissioned by the church for a number of things, and he has said, now if they commission me and say they want it a certain way, I'll do my best. He says, but if I'm just painting, I'm painting. Art is self-expression, art is communication, that's what art is. I'm trying to express something that's important to me, I'll do whatever I want. If it means putting Christ in contemporary clothing or whatever, if it's important to the message I'm trying to make, then I'll do it. That's what Kirk Richards said. And a lot of people talk to me about what the correct clothing of the first vision is. Oh, this is interesting. Think of the imagery of Joseph in the first vision. Let me ask you this question. What clothing is he wearing? A white shirt? Brown pants? And a vest? Now, here's what I'm, I'm going to go through, and I'm doing some research on this right now. Nearly every painting of the first vision clothes Joseph exactly the same. That's an amazing phenomenon. And it actually moves to the symbolism of art. We just started to interpret Joseph 
The further we do a first vision painting, he's wearing these clothes. I can almost start to move it and abstract it. And I can just paint brown pants, white shirt, vest, and the boy looking at the river for vision. Because that's what Robert does to us. Well, look at what Kirk Richard says. People talk about what the correct clothing is in the first vision and so on and so forth. In reality, I don't care. Some clothing experts cringing right now, you know. I want, to, I want to feel what we feel when we think about the first vision. And a lot of times historical details detract from getting that feeling across. So very low on those two considerations is historical detail. Sorry, historians, don't hate me. I'm usually trying to represent the principle of a spiritual truth rather than a historical truth. Now that being said, and, and by the way... Alright, so let me... Let, let me stop that here. Okay, so what are you hearing? What's jumping out at you? How do we know our history? By our art. And, and as far as the artists are concerned, it's not their job to go ahead... We'd probably knock out these lights as well, would we? Okay. It's not, they don't feel like it's their job, nor is it their goal, to paint generally, historically, accurately. Now, I've got, I've got a little bit of a bone to pick, I think, with that, because that has been, I, I get where they're trying to communicate, communicate ideas, but the problem that we have here is that so much of our understanding of history is based on the artwork, and when our and when we've had we've got a problem in this generation where artwork and our under leads us to believe what happened in our history and it conflicts with what really happened. And then people are, that are already struggling have one more piece to say. Well, the church isn't necessarily presenting accurately what happened. Okay, we're in a. I think we're in a world though where you're going to see our artwork get uh, more historically accurate if it's going to be used to teach lessons in church. If you want to walk into Deseret Book and get a, a wonderful painting that you can hang in your house, then get artwork. But if you're going to use a painting or an illustration to teach a primary class or a Sunday school class, make sure it's accurate. Make sure that, we're sent, so that people know exactly when it comes to our history as close as we can so that there's no confusion. Does that make sense? So I think as we begin to roll, when we're talking about seer stones, and now we roll into uh, the coming of Moroni, and then next week when we really start getting into translation, uh, depending on how far we get today, <laughs> um, that, that becomes important about how we visualize it and how we see it. Okay? Yeah? Yes, I know. Because that because that's the question that arises that says, not only did artists paint it, but the church decided to incorporate it. One of the changes that's being made, and, I, and I've said this a few times, here's the, here's the change that is underway in the church. You just have to picture this. Um, who in the past was telling our history? The leaders of the church. Who in the past were church historians? Joseph Fielding Smith, B.H. Uh, Roberts. Leonard it, uh, now, Leonard Arrington was a jump. 
Because up to Leonard Arrington in the mid-70s, the historians and the people telling, telling the, the history was always uh, church leaders and general authorities with a religious message. Primarily to, to teach and, and move uh, and teach the, the doctrines of the kingdom and art was art and our history was part of, and the narrative was part of that. Now we get to Leonard Arrington in the mid 70s and for the first time a, a trained historian becomes a church historian and he's going to think historically accurately. He's going to think like a historian. So he comes in and he does a number of wonderful things Leonard Arrington does. And, and there, then there's some pushback in the church that this is a little too stark. So now we kind of push back a little bit for about the next 15 years or so after Leonard Arrington then goes to BYU, who then donates all of his writings where? To Utah State, because he wasn't sure that BYU would completely uh, open up everything he had. Uh, goes to Utah State. Now, again, with the beginnings of the Joseph Smith Papers, and I've said this repeatedly, with the coming of the Joseph Smith Papers and the desire to have everything that Joseph ever wrote uh, accessible, and I was looking at some things last night that we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks that just blew me away. I was fascinated by what I was finding in the papers. Um, they brought in and hired a team of professional historians. Really great LDS believing Latter-day Saint trained historian people to track down sources, eliminate wasn't ac what wasn't accurate, look down additional things, throw out what was what was not true. And this wave of church historians is turning our history to a beautiful place, and I believe a more faithful place. We're because we're going to talk about Joseph in a second. You're going to see a guy with more warts, maybe than what you heard growing up. And in some ways, it makes what he did far more uh, uh, inspired when we see him fully for who he was. With a, and he makes him more like us, which is kind of cool. Okay. Now, Tim. I'm confused about your comment about the art. Yes. Are you saying that the Depictions yeah. artists have done are wrong? Yes, they are. For instance, the, the one that is prominent that gets seen is, is the one that he was that Anthony Sweat was showing of Joseph and Oliver sitting at the table and Oliver's writing and Joseph has the plates out right in front and he's and he's working off of the plates. That's not even close. And you would go, well, that's just a detail. No, I've had people sitting in my office go, that one really messed me up because that I thought that's where the church wasn't really being honest. Really? It's just a picture. I know, but for a lot of people, that images that they have grown up with saying, this is exactly how it was. Uh, Joseph kneeling in, in the grove uh, with, the, with the white shirt, brown vest, brown pants, Looking up is wonderful, except for the fact that it's in March, the end of March. He's probably wearing a coat, and there are no. Tr okay, so those are details. So symbolically, you go, that's not a big deal. You know what? For somebody who's struggling, it is. Yeah. Another thing about the first vision: the uh, light is said to have come down directly over his head, and I've never seen it depicted that way. Oh, it's always at a slant. You're right. 
Yeah, I know. So, so uh, all I'm saying is, is that when we get into some of these images and, 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 and you take the art and then you say there is a narrative that we have taught over the years that is now being um, uh, dialed in a little bit. We are getting better at telling the right narrative. And, and this growing generation of seminary uh, young institute students are hearing a different version, not ver uh, more refined version, I think, than what you heard. Some of this stuff is all, they're already going, and they're, they're not going to be bothered 20 years from now the way that we've had a generation that have really struggled with this new transparency. Is that, yeah? I think I understand what you mean, but my question kind of awkward. I was thinking about in other religions, uh, Catholic, Buddhism, yes. they have all kinds of arts. Why people have no problem with those Saints with the harmony and the, the, the godness has thousand hands. Boy. Or the vision they have in Catholics. But why people now has a cynical attitude toward the learning in the gospel? That is a when we reveal the great question. She says, why is this any different from like Buddhists and Catholics who have all these kind of artistic uh, representation of of Buddha and yeah. and uh, uh, thinking about Chapel, the and the system, yeah, yeah. People can go there, say this is nice, but then they, they use a metaphor and, and see it as art. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of goes back to what Richard Bushman has said uh, a number of times about Mormonism, and I think this too is changing as well. And I've, been, I've tried to address this for so many years. Our theology has been our history. Our theology of Mormonism has been our history. Tell me about Mormonism. Well, there was a boy, and he's in a grove, and there are gold plates, and there's angels. Our theology has been our history. So what happens when we hear our history different? We're messing with our theology. We're messing with what we believe. Now, that, that's, why, that's why I think it's so... We were trying to talk about it at the end of the Book of Mormon, that the message of the Book of Mormon is not that it existed. That's not the greatest message of the Book of Mormon. And it's not what Moroni... Moroni says, it's not that we were here. It's what we teach you about Christ. It's about what the Book of Mormon talks about, a merciful Christ who keeps his promises. That's the message of the Book of Mormon. It's a merciful Christ who keeps his promises, and he will search out... Uh, the Lamanites that he promised the, pro the prophets he would go find. That's the message of the book. Joseph wouldn't say the most important thing is uh, what, what I did. He would say the most important thing is what I teach you about Christ. And that's what I want to go through our history saying, look at what Joseph is saying all along about how God works with, with normal, ordinary, flawed people. And what he does with us is a message about Christ more than it is a message of Joseph Smith. D does that make sense? I think that's the key. Yeah. Yeah, in the Book of Mormon he says, on the small place that we're talking mainly about things of God, if you want the history, go to the large place. Yeah. And we don't have those. Yeah, exactly. Wait till we get into what was in the lost pages. That's two weeks. Okay. All right. So so let's let's bring this down to the uh, the present. We've been trying hard to uh, get Joseph and Moroni together here. Okay. This story we know fairly well, right? 
that up to this point Joseph has been uh, doing menial day labor he saw he, he had an experience that he believed was his was his conversion story uh, he's not talking about it very much at all according to what we now understand um, He's just not. But he's had this conversion experience and he knows to wait. So now three years in, uh, he's been, you know, he's been on work parties. If guys aren't working very hard, he has a propensity to punch them out. Uh, he'll, he'll make them work, man. He's a hard worker. Um, and, and, but by the time he gets to 17, he's a little bit sure. He's already started doing a little drinking because that was the, that's what they did at the time. Um, but he's so because of his temper and because of a number of things he's just not sure about his standing now with God given what he saw three years earlier so he's gonna we know that he goes to bed we know that he um, uh, we know about the light coming we know that there's Moroni and Moroni is going to uh, tell him about plate where the plates are now at this moment Joseph's experience, remember up to this point, he's saying, I went into a grove of trees, I saw God, I had my sins uh, removed. He, in some ways, he doesn't feel like he's that different from a lot of other people. Methodists were having these experiences of people going into the woods and seeing God or seeing angels or feel like they had a spiritual experience. There was a sign. They were having uh, spiritual experiences okay now so he's had one of those but he doesn't realize how unique it is till this comes with the minute that Moroni comes and says uh, there is a there's a record of ancient people and it's not far from here and it's gonna be your job to get it and get it translated now he's that takes him way out of he's different this is now a departure from everything that whatever happened this makes him very unique now uh, so Moroni is going to come and, and tell him this and this is a well-known story to us but I want to point out something here if I can um, that jumped out at me uh, actually yesterday that's also going to tell us a little something about scripture and how God works. Um, and go to the Pearl of Great Price, Joseph Smith's history. I'm going to scroll down here. Hope you don't get seasick. Uh, I'm going to scroll down to uh, that Moroni comes. in consequences of things he'd been going through I felt condemned for my weaknesses and imperfections so on the 21st of September he retires then he sees Moroni his robe was exceeding white he said there was a book deposited verse 34 giving an account of the ancient inhabitants uh, 35 wait a minute there's more here there are going to be two stones in silver bows and these stones fashioned to a breastplate constitute what is called the Urim and Thummim Okay. Now, he didn't call it the Urim and Thummim until this 1838 account. For years in his records, he just called it the Nephite interpreters. Okay. But he's being told there are going to there are going to be ways to translate this these plates. Okay. 
Now, look at this. This, this I think is fascinating. And, I, and I, I, this is something I've read over and over and over about what Moroni does at this point. But have you ever really thought about what, what is it actually happening here? Okay. Now, after that, now he's being uh, these seer stones, 36. After telling me these things, he commenced quoting prophecies of the Old Testament. Well, that's nice, but what happens? But instead of quoting the first verse as it reads in our books, he quoted it thus. Then, verse 38. He quoted the fifth verse, thus. 39, uh, he also quoted the next verse differently. Okay, now, stop. Stop, stop, stop. Why is Moroni able to take Old Testament prophets' words and change them? That's the part that suddenly jumped out at me. Because again, remember in Joseph Smith's tradition, and to a certain extent our tradition, we look at scripture and we say, there it is. That's the verse. It's carved in stone. That's what the Savior said. That's what Moroni said. There it is. And, and all at once you have this ancient prophet going in, yeah, I'm going to use verses, but I'm going to change them. I'll quote them differently. What gives Moroni the right to change a verse? Isn't it the original, the way we knew the Old Testament was the translation that somebody translated? That, you know, and that's certainly a possibility, right? That what Moroni is quoting is the way that it was originally given, and that somehow, how did we get the Bible that we got? Because remember, for all of our Christian friends, this is like, you don't mess with the Bible. You don't change one single word or nothing. And then they give us 50,000 different versions of it. <laughs> we'll change that, but we're going to change, we're changing scripture all the time. How did we get our Bible, how did we get the King James Version? From, who, who actually did the translation? Scholars. A group of scholars of King James, and what are they working off of? For, by and large, about 80% of it is the Tinsdale Bible. And what was he doing? Well, he's just looking at the Greek and the Hebrew, uh, and he's looking at it, and he's trying to put together the, the words that seem to fit best, the sentiment of the prophets. But he's putting his own words to, a, to a, an idea that's expressed in the verse. Like the word atonement. Like the word atonement. Yeah, where Tinsdale makes it up. We don't have the word atonement in English until Tinsdale goes, reconciliation. How do I put that one? In? Oh, yeah, let's see, at one month. That works. How do I talk about a soft, pleasant voice? I, I know, let me call, let me, still quiet voice. No, that's not good enough. Uh, still small voice. Yeah, I'll use still small voice. That's Tinsdale. Okay, well, all the time, prophets and inspired people will look at verses and interpret that based on inspiration and based on their audience. Okay? Now, keep this in mind next week when we start talking about the translation of the Book of Mormon. Because there's a lot of questions about, as Joseph is translating Alma, for instance, he's working his way through Alma, Think about what happened with Alma, okay? 
Alma's, Alma says, Zarahemla is wicked, Alma 5. Zarahemla is wicked. Um, I'm going to go to Zarahemla and I'm going to preach a sermon. So he stands up and preaches a sermon in Zarahemla. Who's recording that? It's like, like some dude on the first row with a, with a stylus and plates going, Slow down, Alma. Can you say that one again? He can't scribe fast enough, right? Okay. So how do we get... At what, what went on to the, the plates from Alma about that talk in Alma 5 in Zarahemla? I always thought it was he recorded it after the fact. On, on a recorder, right? He just... <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yes. So how did we get it? How we, we got Alma preached a sermon. Then Alma goes home and goes, here's what I told the people in Zarahemla. He's got the stylus and he's, he's and going to write it down. And he's, but it's going to be changed from what exactly he said. Because he's going to say it differently. He's going to use different words. So then Alvin's going to put into the plates what he wrote. Lovely. Now, then it's going to go through whose hands next? Mormons. So Mormons going, okay, I'm putting the narrative together of the Book of Mormon. Here's these great talks by Alma, and he's going to like put some stuff in. He's going to keep that, but he may have changed some words. He may have done things a little bit differently. Okay, so now it's on the plates, and it's on Mormon's abridgment of what Alma said, of what he thought he said to the people in Zarahemla. <coughs> Then, now we're safe, right? Ooh. It's going to go through Joseph Smith's mind off the seer stone, and Joseph is then going to record it there. Okay, so, so, um, so you see all of these iterations here. Yeah. yeah? Usually it would be Yeah, oh, yeah, well, no, there's three steps more, and I'm, again, I'm way ahead, because now Joseph is going to take what he's seeing, he's going to tell it to Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery's going to write it down, or Martin Harris, or Emma, whoever was involved in this, and there were about eight of them that had some, touched it at some point. They're going to write it down. Oh, now we need to get it to the printer. Now what do we do? Okay, well, we're going to take it, we're going to make a copy from the original manuscript to the printer's manuscript, and we're going to give it to Mr. Gilbert, and he's going to um, typeset this onto the, to the uh, Grandin Press plates. He's going to typeset it. Wait a minute, Oliver put no punctuation in any of this. So and I'm going to have to punctuate this thing. Then as we're going to talk about next week, hopefully. Then if they recognize that there's a mistake in a batch, then they, they make the change, and then the changes occur on the next batch, but it doesn't necessarily change the mistake in the first batch. So in other words, you're getting this, and so there's a number of changes that happen to the Book of Mormon, uh, the words of the prophets, and, and so th there is this process of trying to get the verses to our heart, ultimately. Yeah. Not to mention, we all have different perspectives. And then we have different perspectives about how we read it. Yes. 
as we share it with others, we share it with our own perspectives. So. And then we, t yes. Okay, so what you get is this sense of the Lord is speaking to prophets and what Joseph is putting down on the plates is going to be this beautiful compilation of here's what I think the prophets intended. Don't be surprised though if it's not a word for word kind of thing. Uh, again, I'm jumping way ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, to some extent, that happens today. We record general conference, and then it is typed up as it is said. It's sent to the brethren. The brethren edit it. Yeah. It yeah. And Good point. So what we get in the inside may be different than what was said. And sometimes it is, and we go, wait, that's not exactly what he said. No. There's a process here. Okay, so. The answer to the question, what gives Moroni the right? Yes, yes. Under the inspiration of the Lord, he will take what is actually written and, it, and he may change it based on the audience, <coughs> based on uh, the purpose of that. Prophet's words are going to be said a little bit differently. Because, for instance, I know that I've taught the same class to different audiences, and I teach it differently. I teach it. If I were teaching this class to a primary class, I would probably say my same my same ideas. I would just say it differently. The same right we have. Yes, the same. That's a good way to put it. The same right we have. Yeah. And everybody knows that after a hundred years or a thousand years, some words are added and some. <sighs> History is a foreign land, man. It is. And, and, and so even the context of that is changes and words are different. Uh, are, are you going to go out for Christmas time and put on gay apparel? <laughs> that changed. Thank goodness for the Holy Ghost. Yes, thank goodness for the Holy Ghost. Absolutely. Okay, so, so this is the classic story we know from uh, that Moroni comes, he's going to tell him where the location of the plates is about uh, three miles down the road, you've got to get out on the Canegra Road, get down there, he knows the hill, he knows where it is, okay? Now, I'm sorry to interrupt, what is the current belief of where Moroni came? Because I've been to the Palmyra like you have, and they told me it's the cabin. And the other it's the cabin. I went it was the house. Another time they go, we don't know. And so, so what is the current? Well, the house doesn't, the, the house do, isn't built yet. Well, they, um, what I was explaining, now this has been yeah. 70 years. They said the roof wasn't on the house, but right. Joseph was sleeping in the house. Oh, really? Now, that, now I'm not saying that's right. I'm, I'm asking you. <sighs> no, I, the, the, the historians on the, I mean, traditionally we put it there. You're right. I, I, I just, I don't think the house was ready yet. Because Alvin dies in. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, so the house was. That's yeah, yeah, it wasn't completed yet. Yeah. So I, I would put it here. Which makes it a little kind of. If you've been upstairs in that house, you know, when they, if they tried to reproduce it, it's a kind of a crammed little space here. Okay? So we know that Moroni comes several times. Uh, the last one being uh, when he's trying to work in the morning after he's been kept up all night. Uh, he tries to climb the fence, falls over, sees it again. Uh, now, his belief is then that it's now, in, in explaining it to dad, uh, the belief is that he will now go down the road and get the plates right now this morning. So he goes down, uh, goes to the hill Camorra. Come on. Come on. Come on. 
Okay. Uh, let's say so in 1823, as this is occurring, um, he's going to go down there. He expects to go get it. He sees the gold plates. But remember, in all of his, what, what's been really, what has he spent most of his time doing the last couple of years? Looking for, digging for gold and lost things as people will hire him, him and his seer stone to go find stuff. And he keeps getting pulled into uh, business ventures, partly by his dad, plugging him in to say, he's really good at this, hire him out. So he's, and it works, he's good at it. Okay, so he looks, now, um, the, this is September, the payment on the house is due in December. What do you think is on Joseph's mind? The gold plates. This is our salvation for the house. And he sees it, and despite everything that Moroni has said to him, there's our salvation. He's pretty excited. He reaches in to get it, and, it, and he says he tried three times to retrieve them, and he, and he said out loud, why can, I, uh, why can I not obtain the book? Moroni appears again and says, you have not kept the commandments of the Lord. <clears throat> Which commandment hasn't, hasn't he kept? Pray always. Pray always. Yeah, and have a nice single to the glory of God. He's, using a, he's looking at other possibilities for that. Okay? So, he said, um, so you need to not just keep the commandments, you've got to change your heart completely. Okay. So, Go home, come back here next year and get the plates. So he assumes next year, uh, 1824, he will go home. He, he will be able to come and get the plates 12 months from now. Okay? Yeah? My husband really has a problem with this picture because in his mind, uh, I... The plates were very sacred, so why would Rome not just leave them open without protecting them and covering them with cloth or something? Oh, because the open witness is sitting yeah. on... Yeah, it, it would make sense that it might be covered with something, right? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, it's those... It's those it's those artists thing, yeah. Because the nice thing is is that the sunlight's hitting it and it's glowing. And he's in a yeah. t-shirt. And he's in a t-shirt, yeah, in September. Yeah, they would be wrapped up. Do you know what's fascinating that, about that though? Uh, and that may be true, but it is interesting that when, when he gets ready to go get the plates, he has to keep bringing his own stuff. It isn't like there's a record of, because it might have actually been written, wrapped in something that maybe over a thousand years it's dis dissolved away. Uh, there is another problem though, and I'll talk to you about it in a second with this location. Okay, so he expects to get the, the plates next year if he's worthy. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to go home and he's going to tell the family. Couldn't get them. I'm getting it next September. Great. Okay, now, at this point, during that next year, uh, Alvin dies in November. Okay, he's, he sees... He sees Moroni in September. Alvin dies in November. Alvin is kind of the, uh, 
as Father Smith is not doing well, uh, Father Smith is drinking a little more than he should, he's having a hard time keeping it together, Alvin is building the, the white frame house and he's listed on the, on the records in Palmyra as the co-owner of the house, Alvin is, not Joseph Smith Sr. So Alvin dying in November is a major blow, major blow to the family. Um, and they're not able to make the payment in December, they're, they're about to run past due. There is some really financial desperateness in, to, in, uh, in uh, 1824 for the family. Okay, So when it gets to be June, July, August and it's time for Joseph to get the plates, how pumped is the family that Joseph's about to come home with gold plates? They are really pumped. In fact, they're just like, that. the morning of September 22nd, or 21st, 1824, the family's like, you go. This is, man, this is going to be great. Even if we can't use the plates, we might be able to like charge people to come see them. Or there, some way we're going to be financially enriched, enriched? <laughs> by the plates. So, so, um, Joseph has a charge from the family to bring those plates home and it will be the financial salvation to the family. Okay. Now, this one's a tough one. 1824. Alvin dies during the year. Financial situation is more dire. He gets the plate. Now watch what happens here. He gets the plates out of the box. But he's still hoping to benefit from the other. So, so he does this. He does a very human thing. He, he pulls the stone back. There's the plates. He gets them. He pulls them out of, the, out of the hole. He goes over. He sets them down so that he can then go back and put the stone back on the box. As he's going to do that, he notices that the plates are gone. Where'd he go? He goes back to the hole, and there's the plates again. <laughs> okay? And all the way through, he goes, wait, oh, I got the plates, I got the plates, we're saved. They're gone. I'm going back here, there they are. Okay, tries to get them. Now... The plates vanish, they're taken back to the box. Now, he tries to grab them again, and I think Moroni punched him out. <laughs> it's my interpretation of it. <laughs> he says that he is hurled physically backwards. He tries to grab it, and there's like, like imagine somebody um, uh, like touching an electric fence or something like that. He is hurled. And that's his word. He was hurled backwards. Well, like Nephi to his brothers. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Maybe, maybe Moroni's got that Nephi thing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay, he's hurled back and he goes home brokenhearted. Now, uh, you almost have to picture this scene. Family sitting maybe around the kitchen table waiting for Joseph to show up. Joseph walks in empty-handed and heartbroken. I, I couldn't get him. I couldn't get him. And Father Smith is a little angry. Actually, Father Smith is a lot angry. And he says, if I'd have been there, I'd have got the plates. I could have gotten the plates. And Joseph says, Father, you do not know what you ask. And they are, and the major depression begins to settle in in the family because they realize that it's not going to happen, at least this year. 
because they were counting on these plates being their financial uh, bailout. Okay? So, now that, so we don't know exactly what happened. There's no record. He doesn't write anything much about 1825 other than the fact that he's still not worthy enough and doesn't get them. 1826, there's a court appearance in March, which is kind of interesting, uh, for defrauding a man through money digging. Uh, this act, the, the man is actually the nephew of Josiah Stoll. Uh, Josiah Stoll has hired Joseph to come find silver, uh, Captain Kidd's uh, treasure, silver on his land near Harmony. Uh, his nephew thinks that Joseph is trying to defraud his uncle, so he takes Joseph to court for vagary. And, and Josiah Stoll, in the court document, defends Joseph. No, I hired him. He's a good boy. He did exactly what I asked him to do. I don't have any problem with him, so it gets thrown out. But in this court record, and we have this, it's, it's extant, we have this record. Joseph is saying to the judge, he says, well tell me about what you do. Well I use my brown stone, my seer stone, I put it in a hat, I see things, and I go find things. Great. He says, so tell me about this business. And he says, and this is March, 1826. It's not very profitable. And I think I'm ready to stop doing it. I think I'm ready to stop doing it. That's March. Now, he's back in Palmyra, late summer. Here comes 1826. The farm is now lost. They, they defaulted. Uh, they actually had to sell it to another man that let them work the, the land. Uh, but in 1826, he's told by the Moroni, this is your last chance. You are still not, you still have your eye set on finding some way to make money off of this deal. And I'm a little sympathetic to Joseph because he's watching his parents lose the farm. But Moroni says, this is your last chance. If you don't get it done this year, you'll, you'll, you'll be done. And he has this one last year to kind of get his act together. Can you get a sense of just how hard it is to get to move the ball with Joseph on this? He is so buried in his culture and his family's financial woes that he's having just... Because the angel isn't just saying, do good. He's saying, your heart has to change. You have to have your eyes single to the glory of God to your core. And if, and if you don't do it this year, you're done. So Joseph in 1826 walks out of that grove going, I'm, i gotta, I got to change. It's, it's now desperate if I'm going to do this. Yeah? I just think the Lord could have picked someone who didn't have, family didn't have these financial problems. But I think it's because they needed, the Lord needed someone who was really going to be totally dedicated to it, who went through these struggles. Yeah. And they learned how to make these choices. Yeah, she's saying actually the Lord could have chosen somebody else, right, that wasn't going to have, have that might have been a little bit more uh, focused on it. Maybe if they were financially in a good place, they weren't going to be bothered by this. This was a particular struggle for Joseph. But for whatever reason, it was going to be Joseph. And, and Joseph sold into Egypt knew it was going to be Joseph, <laughs> as did the people that had seen him. Yeah, Chris? I was just going to mention that uh, the 
drive home the point. The Lord oftentimes uses a substitute. Look at Oliver Cowdery. He was the one that was supposed to die in the Carthage jail. Yeah. He fell. Yeah. Hiram. And, and up being Hiram. Yeah. So he and so and the and the Lord's going to tell him. Uh, oh boy, we'll see. I, we're not going to get to the lost pages yet. Lord's going to say, "Thou art Joseph, but you can fail. You can fall." And that's what Moroni is telling him in 1826. Okay, so now, questions on this? This four years is quite a deal. Well, you know, the Lord doesn't make mistakes. No, He doesn't. He knew, he knew that Joseph would Joseph kick was. in. And He knew what He could become. Right. But I need you to see how vigorously Moroni had to work with Joseph to change him. He's being hurled back. He's being reprimanded. Uh, now, there's one more. And I think I put it in here. Yep, yep, yep. Early in eight, okay, so he gets that shock in September. Make sure you, this is your last shot. Early, we think around March, 1827. Okay. At last, Joseph has gone out to run an errand. He's not come back. At last, an exhausted Joseph came through the door and dropped into a chair. For a long time, he sat silent while his father plied him with questions. Lucy held back. Uh, the fact was, she said, I, I had learned to be a little cautious about matters with regard to Joseph, for I was accustomed to see him look as he did on that occasion, and I could not easily mistake the cause thereof. Finally, Joseph said quietly, I have taken the severest chastisement that I have ever had in my life. The angel had met Joseph on the road near Camorra and warned him that he had not been engaged enough in the work of the Lord, that the time had come for the record to be brought forth, and that I must be up and doing and set myself about the things that God had commanded me to do. Joseph appeared calm. I know. I now know the course that I am to pursue, so all will be well. But this is four years of Joseph having to be molded and shaped, and the, and the his culture kind of pulled out of him, and his and he's got to mature. So I know that on, in 1823 he was planning on getting the records. Joseph wasn't even close to being ready to translate in 1823 just wasn't. Okay? So, even in 1827, there's, there's still a struggle. And there you can see the hill in the background. Okay, so finally we get to uh, 1827. Uh, he has now married Emma. Uh, he's had to tell a Mr. Lawrence uh, who had been part of the money digger gang that he had gone with us. Remember, there's a gang of 11 that is out doing uh, these kind of things that he and dad are part of. He said he had told him before he married Emma, after Alvin died, he planned on taking Alvin with him to go get uh, the plates. He tells us, Mr. Lawrence, I'll take you. And he actually has taken Lawrence to the hill, so Lawrence knows where the hill is. But he has to then say sometime in the fall, I'm not taking you, I'm going to take Emma. Lawrence was ticked. And, and uh, Joseph becomes worried that this man will actually try and stop him on September 21st to get the plates. 
So as he gets ready that night before to go get the plates, he sends dad. He says, I need you to go over to Lawrence's house. Listen outside his house. Listen outside the cabin. See if there's any movement like they're planning on meeting me at the hill, Camorra. And he says, if you see him come out of the house like he's going to Camorra, tell him that I will trash the stumps with him. <laughs> I will beat him up if he shows up. Okay? So, uh, Joseph Knight has come up from Colesville. Joseph Knight knows that uh, this is the day, the day is coming. Uh, he, he so he brought his wagon. Uh, Joseph will get up in the middle of the, just past midnight. He'll grab Emma. Uh, Lucy sees them go. They get Joseph Knight's wagon. Uh, they, drive, they drive out to the hill Camorra. He gets the plates with Emma. And then, recognizing, not quite sure what to do with this, uh, he then takes the plates and he puts the plates in a hollowed out log and covers it up with sticks and leaves and stuff like that. What do you do with the other stuff? Oh, he's going to hang on to the interpreters. I think he put the breastplate with the, um, with the uh, plates in the log. But the interpreters, remember, this guy's into seer stones. And when he sees those, in, those Nephite interpreters, for that first little period of time, this is like Nephi when he sees the sword of Laban. You know, and he goes, sword! <laughs> well, Joseph has a shiny object, and it is the Nephite interpreters. Okay, uh, I'll show you why, okay? So, this is, this is so great. This is so... This is, I love this thing. So they're all waiting, including Joseph Knight. So it's like morning's coming up. The family's about. Uh, Joseph Knight is staying at the house. Um, Joseph comes in, puts the wagon away, comes in, and he sees Joseph Knight sitting at the kitchen table. It's just he and, he and Joseph Knight. <laughs> True story. He sits down next to Joseph Knight at the kitchen table. And, and Joseph goes, how did it go? We don't know. Is this another one? And he said, he said, Joseph put his head in his hands. And he goes, I am so disappointed. So disappointed. And Joseph Knight goes, I'm so sorry. Maybe it will get better. Uh, uh, it's got to be hard night. It's got to be really hard for you and everything. And then Joseph goes, I'm just kidding. <laughs> His face breaks out in a grin and he goes, I have them and they are ten, better, ten times better than I thought. <laughs> I, I just, I, I picture Joseph going, oh, I, you know, I'm so disappointed. And he's, like, he's looking to see how Joseph Knight is doing. <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> They're great. Okay. And, and what he's talking about is the Nephite interpreters. He says, they are ten times better than I ever thought. I can see anything in them. I can see anything. So, we then go through this period of time. Um, let, me, let, 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 let me do it. Let me approach it this way. Uh, the top corner is the Hill Camorra today. 
you can see where they do the pageant uh, up there at the top, okay? We have another couple of pictures that I, I've got here of, of the uh, Hill Cumorah. This is actually a late 1890s on the right. And look a little different. Okay. Uh, third, third person down there is Joseph F. Smith. So this is, this is 1905. And Joseph Smith is considering purchasing the hill as well as a couple of historical sites, but he brings a he brings a large group, thank you, uh, of saints, and they climb the hill Camorra on the north side near the west side, where they think that the plates might have been. And that, but again, I want you to take a look at the at the the hill itself. Now, I love this. This is actually eighteen. This is like. 1841. This was from a newspaper cutting, and part, there's two things about this this newspaper article that I think are fantastic. One is the bottom, where it says, uh, if, "I don't know if you can read it." it. Says this is the scene where Joe Smith buried the stone box. Can you hear the narrative? Yeah, there was a stone box in some place, but Joe Smith buried it up there so that he could defraud everybody. So this is the scene where, where Joe Smith buried the stone box. Okay. Now, number two, I want look at the hill Camorra in the background. What do you see? You're seeing a stand of trees on the backside. But you're already saw you're in 1841. You're seeing them start to plow and use the hill as a field to grow wheat. This was what primarily what they were growing a lot of in the Palmyra area, wheat. Okay. This is 1907, and the entire hill is being used to grow wheat. And there's, so there's two things about this. There, the tradition in that area, that little. Enclave, the entrance to Smith's cave. There was an indentation near the top where tradition was in town that this is where the stone box was where Joseph Smith got the plates. Now, the, the farmer, uh, Wallace Miner, got really tired of Mormons tramping through his fields to go look at, to go climb up there. He got tired of that, so he filled the hole in. <laughs> So they would quit going to try and find this hole at the top of the hill. Um, now, the other thing though, let, let me just ask you this. So, the, so by, by 1841, they're already starting to plow this. Now, if you're a farmer and you're going to use this hill to plant your crops, what's the first thing you've got to do? You've got to clear out the trees. Then what do you got to clear out? The rocks. The rocks. You got to clear out the rocks. If they were going to use this as a hill, and there's a big rounded stone near the top where you're trying to plant your crops, what do you got to do with that stone? You got to move it. You've got to move it. I think that's one of the reasons why Joseph is being pushed hard to say, uh, we need to go get the plates out now because they're going to start using this hill for crops and they're going to remove that stone and find the plates. There's an expedience here. Expediency, okay? Alright. Questions on any of this? We rolling too slow? Okay. 
<sighs> okay. Now, ultimately, we know the story. Let me just tell it quickly. Uh, a couple of weeks after uh, the, Joseph has brought the plates home, uh, he wants to get the plates out of the, the log that he's got them stored in. Um, so he's got to get a box made um, to put the plate. He doesn't have the money, doesn't have the box to put the plates in. And, and nobody else seems to either. So he gets a chance to work for... Um, <coughs> Uh, a lady in uh, Mayston that is just to the west of Palmyra has a nice little uh, diner in it by the way if you're ever in Palmyra and you want a place to live it's right there on the main road in Mayston has a chance to dig a well for this lady okay uh, so he goes up to Mayston to dig the well to earn the money to buy a box to put the plates in so he can get it out of the stump Father Smith happens to hear over here, people, the neighbors talking about how they're going to attack Joseph, beat him up, and get the plates. He's pretty worried. He tells Emma, there, there's going to be a mob coming soon. They're going to try and track down Joseph, beat him up, torture him, or whatever, get the plates. Emma goes, oh my goodness, we got to do something about this. She gets in the wagon. She starts riding up towards Palmyra to get to Joseph to tell him. Joseph is working at the, at doing the well in Mayston. Happens to look in the interpreters and sees Emma coming. Okay? Now, I think that's, I think that's kind of fascinating. Oh, there she is and she's coming to get me. And it's like a video. Yeah, it's, it's like he's got that. I keep, Cindy and I were joking the other night, there seems to be a similarity to seer stones and smartphones. <laughs> By the way, all this information that's on the smartphone, where is it located? Is it on your phone? No. No, where is it? It's in the cloud. <laughs> okay, I just think that's fascinating from a seer stone. Is it in the seer stone? No, where is it? It's in the cloud. Yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so, so Joseph goes, Joseph looks two things. Here comes Emma, and then he's also able to see the stump where the plates are. They are safe. So he's going to get on a horse. He will ride... He will come back to Palmyra, comes down there. He meets Emma coming up. She goes, uh, they're coming to get the plates. He goes, I know. How'd you know I was coming? You were, you were in the interpreters. Wow, that's cool. Um, but we need to go do something about the plates. I know. Are they safe? Yeah, I've already seen them. They're safe. How do you know? It was in the interpreter. Okay. <laughs> so they go back, and Joseph is then going to then take the wagon, or no, no, he's horse. He's going to do this on foot. He's going to actually go out to the place, go up the road on his own. He gets, he, he gets the plates. They weigh about 60 pounds. And he's hauling these things back. And he will be assaulted three times between the house and back to the Smith farm. He, uh, he's, he's able to beat one guy up. Another guy attacks him. He punches him out, dislocates his shoulder, his, his thumb. So he's got a dislocated thumb. Now he's trying to carry 60 pounds of plates. Uh, manages to knock out another guy who's trying to get him. And through all of this, now he comes bruised 
bruised and bleeding with a dislocated thumb and he bangs on the back door of the white frame house. Joseph Knight is at the house. Joseph says, here, take the plates. And he's going to take the plates and through the back window he hands the plates to Joseph Knight, senior, who is the, only the second person to hold the plates in, in the restoration period. And he says as he hefts them, he can feel the plates underneath, the, the metal, he can hear them clanking against each other, and he will take them and hide them under the bed. And then Joseph's going to come in bleeding and exhausted. Uh, and then they're going to, uh, they will then find a box, they will bury it in a number of different places, uh, one of which the story we've heard um, is, is in the heart they pulled up the hearthstones there in that house, buried them underneath, hide them. That's about the time that the mob shows up about the next day. They've got their own soothsayer, uh, uh, walks in, uh, says the plates are underneath the hearth. Uh, Joseph has gone out. They're screaming and yelling on the outside. They stir everybody up and everything. They all leave because they think they're about to be attacked. The mob leaves. And then he's going to take the plates and put them in the barn across. You can see the white house in the bottom picture. That's on the other side of the road. The barn's just to this side. They hide it in the barn. Under some flags. Yeah, he's going to put them up here originally. He puts them in the attic. Then he starts worrying about it. He takes them out of the box. He puts the plates in the flax. Then he puts the, the um, box back up in the attic. They wake up the next morning. The floorboards have been torn up. The box is broken, but the flax is still sitting there. By the way, they will do the flax trick uh, when they tr travel, when they take the plates down to Harmony in uh, Emma's brother's wagon. They will put it in the flax and bury it, okay? So, I'm trying to kind of quickly, these are more common stories, I think, that we, that we know these stories, right? Yeah. Right, and, and we heard some of those, but the like, sword of Laban, I mean, that is no small object. That, that, he didn't have the sword of Laban at this point. Uh, All he has is the breastplate, the interpreters, and, and the plates. No, th those are shown to the three witnesses, but they weren't there in the box, and he's not trying to haul them around. Okay? All right. So. Yeah, let's get him to harmony before we get done here. He's going to get harassed so much um, that they're not able to get anything done. They, they spend most of their time moving uh, the plates back and forth, uh, trying to avoid the people that are trying to, to believe that they're entitled to the plates. Uh, he is then going to... Um, they decide that they will then move to Harmony, down, down with uh, Emma's dad in Pennsylvania. Um, they're going to get ready to leave, but he gets taken to court a couple of times for debts. That he has. He's run up a bill at the general store and stuff like that. Martin Harris will give him $80 to pay off his debts so that they can then move to Harmony. Um, the problem with that is that everybody in town knows that he's leaving. And he will be, uh, he will be stopped by a couple of deputies on the road. Uh, between uh, Palmyra and Harmony. 
but they have done the flax trick. They've got it it's sitting in a barrel in the back and they put it about halfway down in the flax and, and buried it so it can't be found. Okay. Uh, he will go live with um, dad, Isaac Hale. Um, one of the beauties of the Joseph Smith papers, I was looking last night and you're going to go, that really is what you do in the evening. Yeah, sometimes it is. <laughs> I was looking at the original deed of Isaac Hale selling the property across the street, across the road from his house to Joseph Smith. There's 14 acres. Um, it costs him, the, the cost is $200, and he has to pay $125 up front. Uh, to, to get that property on that he will be, there is a small house that uh, Emma's brother had built and they will move into that house okay and so that, that then leads us to Martin Harris we have 10 minutes. <laughs> Questions on what we've d talked about so far? Things that have jumped out at you? Yeah. Well, I read somewhere, uh, it was probably prior to them leaving, but they used psychics to try to yeah, they did. locate the, the plates. And Brigham Young knew the one psychic that, that found the plates underneath the hearth. Um, and he said, I will, I will find Joe Smith's plates. Um, Brigham Young said he was the evilest, he was, he was the best soothsayer he ever knew, and also the evilest man he ever knew. And that it was just kind of, and, and Lucy talks about how spooky this guy was. In, in working with uh, Chase Willard, or Willard Chase and uh, Lawrence. Yeah. Well, Satan knew where the plates were. Too. Oh, sure. Yeah, Satan knew where that was. Yeah. Good question. That was the question that I had. He's trying to come up with all this money. He either probably, I'm guessing he borrowed it from Joseph Knight or that uh, uh, Isaac Hale took it on uh, at an, adv an advance and he was going to have to do it by working the farm. S something like that. Yeah, Trenton. Yeah, you know what, and, and that, that's a good point. Let me, let me um, tell you what, let, let, let me finish with this. Uh, because I think one of the stories, and, and I'll, I'll launch into Martin Harris next week, uh, because Martin Harris is going to play a major role here, including his trip to New York uh, with the three wise men and uh, the things we find there, okay? Um, but let, here's something that jumped out at me last night. Uh, when we look at the humanness of Joseph, this is part of what makes me just love him even more, is that you just look at this, this young boy who has his, his flaws, and he's just, he's a, he's a backwoods plowboy. He just is. And the Lord is going to shape him and transform him into the prophet of the restoration. And, and when we look at one of his, well, he had, a, he did have a major flaw. Um, 
and it was one that he battled all of his life and we get a hint to it and, I, and it looks like I'm going to jump ahead but I'm really not um, when he loses the when he loses the the uh, plates which by the way he'll lose twice uh, in the same summer um, the first recorded revelation that was given to Joseph um, right at the time that he is he's lost the he's lost the interpreters uh, and the plates and by the way, Joseph Smith, the uh, Joseph Smith papers, you can pull up the original of this, which is really fascinating. There's some additional things in here we'll talk about next time. But um, you can read this in uh, John Whitmer's actual handwriting as, as Joseph was dictating it. But here's what the Lord tells him at the time that he let Oliver take the 116 pages. Martin, Martin Harris, thank you. Yeah. The time that Martin Harris took the 116 pages. By the way, there's not 116 pages. There's closer to 200. Story for next time. Okay. Um, but here's what here's what Joseph is being told. You want to know Joseph's big flaw? Behold, you have been entrusted with these things, but how strict were your commandments, and remember also the promises which were made to you by Martin, if you did not transgress them, and behold, oh, by the Lord, pardon me, and behold, how oft have you transgressed the commandments and the laws of God, and have gone on in the persuasions of men. That's his battle. Although men said it not the counsels of God and despise his words, yet you should have been faithful. What was Joseph Smith's major struggle? Fear of, Fear of men. I think that's his major battle. I think that's why he is he's a he's a backwoods, unlearned boy. And I think he is odd. Th think about uh, Joseph Knight is in his mid-50s. Uh, Martin Harris is in his uh, late 40s. Um, he, when he runs into Sidney Rigdon, Sidney Rigdon is 20 years his senior. There's all these older people that are smarter and more educated than he is. And he's just a boy. And they know, but he's supposed to somehow be the seer and the prophet. And when older people are saying, he has a tendency to be persuaded by them talked into stuff that he shouldn't have been talked into and I believe that he battles it all the way through uh, Liberty Jail. It's only after Liberty Jail that he stands tall and nobody's talking to him. He's a different prophet that walks out of Liberty. But up till then it's still Sidney Rigdon. Even Oliver Cowdery is the same age but Oliver Cowdery is more learned and more erudite so he's always letting somebody else talk for him. He, is, he struggles with the persuasions of men. Okay. I don't, I don't think he wants to disappoint anyone either because of his caring heart. I don't think he wants to. He's very loving and tender. He doesn't, just doesn't want to disappoint anybody. Uh, and, boy, and, and we'll start next week. There are some big time reasons why I'm, you're going to have to be sympathetic to Martin Harris more than we have because there's some big time reasons why he wanted those, those uh, about 200 pages. Yeah. Wasn't the family's financial situation a great stress and burden? And, and dad, yeah, the family's financial thing. So dad is breathing down his neck saying, we, we, gotta, uh, we need help here. Mm -hmm. 
and he loves his dad. He loves his dad, and he and 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 to have to turn down dad and go, I I couldn't get the plates, and yeah, we're going to lose the farm. And I could have gotten gold, and we could have saved it, but we're losing the farm because of me. And I'm not Alvin. Yeah. I'm not Alvin. Question. Yeah. Oh yes. Well, I Thank you. Talking to him. No. I should say, don't we all have that problem? I think we do. And, and I guess, and, and that's why I say, and let me just finish with this. Part of understanding the full, why I'm taking sometimes a little more detail on these people, uh, I mean, you're going to see why it is that Martin Harris and his wife split up uh, next time. But uh, part of what makes them so human is the fact that I think we can look at it and say, if the Lord can transform somebody like this, what can he do with me? If the Lord can take somebody with those kind of flaws, and I have similar flaws, He can use me. Maybe not to that extent, but certainly, if He can transform seer stones and plates into these remarkable things, what can He do with people? And what can He do with us? And I think that's the message. For Joseph Smith to take the chastisement and everything that he did, and to still be, I mean, I would have dug a hole for a minute and wanted to stay there. Uh, yeah, well, let alone take the chastisement and then write it down and then publish it. <laughs> you know, there's the amazing part. You know, if, if Joseph Smith is this egotistical, uh, charismatic guy, the last thing he's going to do is say, here's the Dutch blessing I get from Moroni and from the Lord. Let me write that down and journal it and then you put it and then you print it in a book. You know, that just shows you some, some of his humility. So, Anyway, uh, why, don't we, why don't we finish this up? I just think, um, and anyway, the, the, these stories are so fascinating, and they are our, they are our history, but they're not our theology. But we're going to understand that our theology is coming through very flawed people that have been raised up by and protected by and transformed by the Lord to do what they did. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Father in heaven, <clears throat> we're thankful.